0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories Web 3 Edition. I'm here today joined by a returning guest, Hasib Qureshi. Haseeb is a partner at Dragonfly Capital. Haseeb, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric.
0: So, Haseeb, uh, a lot has happened since since we've last spoke, and I want to kind of uh, chronicle a little bit of what's happened. So, right now, we are in a in a crypto winter. This is not our first time in, in a in the <laughs> crypto winter. Uh-huh. Um, why don't you contextualize a little bit? Uh, how do you contextualize this crypto bear market with previous crypto bear markets, and and how should we think about what that means for going forward?
1: Yeah. So I imagine most people are familiar with what happened in crypto from 2017 to 2018. That bear market really was precipitated by the popping of the ICO bubble. So you remember late 2017, ICOs, which was this like decentralized fundraising mechanism, went really crazy. There were a ton of tokens that were valued extremely speculatively. And then there was a moment where people just kind of lost confidence. People felt like the, the top was too frothy, and then slowly everything started unraveling. Every single token dumped. Uh, a bunch of things went to as close to zero as anything in crypto gets. Uh, <laughs> obviously, nothing crypto ever actually hits zero, but it gets close enough that you can write off your portfolio. And then the whole thing, you know, by uh, Bitcoin went you know twenty k to uh, I think uh, 3,000 3, at the bottom, and uh, you know Ethereum went from twelve hundred to you know. Double digits, so it was a it was a pretty brutal ride. Now, in the same in the same fashion, in this cycle, we've seen uh, you know compared to where Bitcoin was just you know seven eight months ago, Bitcoin was at you know north of sixty k. Now it's uh, just below thirty k. Ethereum was at four thousand something. Now it's at uh, you know it's below two thousand. It's like eighteen hundred ish. So, are we seeing a repeat of the same story? And the answer, as always, is yes and no. So, the first is what's similar. What's similar is that, okay, there's been you know some shaking of confidence. We saw the collapse of Luna slash usT, which was this big decentralized algorithmic stablecoin that spooked a lot of people last month, and it's caused a lot of hemming and hawing in the industry. Um, so there are there have been massive failures and things that went down to zero. But um that's actually a minority of what's happened in crypto, actually. It's a pretty small part. Uh, most of the things that are in the top twenty, top thirty in crypto are actually working. They're fine. they're They're totally robust. The fundamentals look okay. The real thing, that's happening in crypto is that this drawdown has actually not been endogenous the way that the last drawdown was. This has actually been completely driven by macro. So what you've seen is that historically from, basically if you take crypto from inception up till about you know uh, late 2020, the, the correlation between crypto and the NASDAQ was about 0.1. Meaning that there was very little correlation. For the most part, crypto did its thing, the NASDAQ did its thing, and never the twain shed me. The thing that changed in the year 2020 that was the beginning of the institutional adoption of crypto. And for a long time in crypto, we've been talking about the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming, hoping that someday institutions will be here. Well, they're here now. And now the institutions are here, what that does is it means that you now have common ownership. The same people who own the S&P 500 and own the NASDAQ and own all these tech stocks also own crypto. And when their risk models tell them, hey, it's time to cut risk, it's time to go you know, buy more Treasuries. Crypto is in the same bucket as all the other risky stuff. And so it ends up moving in lockstep. So this is one of the consequences of common ownership is actually the correlation with other asset classes goes up. But the second thing about it is that uh, because crypto uh, has been crypto has been moving up and down in this risk portfolio, but crypto is tied to macro. And a lot of people are like, why is this happening? Why is crypto tied to macro? Isn't it weird? Shouldn't crypto be uncorrelated from macro? And the answer, I think pretty resoundingly, is no, of course not. Crypto is very fundamentally tied to interest rates. For fairly straightforward reasons. So, so first of all, cryptos only existed in a low interest rate environment, right? It was literally Bitcoin was created after the Great Financial Crisis, and ever since then, rates, real rates, have been very deeply negative all over the world, but you know, particularly in the U.S. We're now moving into a world where we, the expectations that real rates are going to increase. They, you know, we'll see whether or not they're positive, but at least they're increasing or getting near to zero. In that world, a few things change. So one is that you're less starved for yield. Right? When the risk-free rate goes up, it means that sources of weird yield or you know weirder things you can do to generate yield are no longer quite as necessary. Um, and that's a lot of what DeFi was about. DeFi, a lot of its early product market fit was people being able to generate and attract yield in a world that was starved for yield. But when everyone's a little bit more fed on yield, then the marginal demand for DeFi is going to go down. Right. So to the extent that a lot of crypto is about the story of where you can find yield in, in a yield-starved environment, um, that becomes less attractive on a relative basis. In a world of high interest rates, but the second and most obvious point about why interest rates affect crypto is that crypto is a bet on the future, and anytime you're betting on the future, the the discount rate on the future and the and the rate at which you should you should care about present cash flows versus future cash flows matters, right? So Bitcoin, digital gold, but it's not digital gold today. Everyone kind of understands that, right? It's 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 a speculative asset today. Eventually, it'll be digital gold, and that's the thing that we're all betting on is it eventually become that. But the rate at which it becomes digital gold, the you know how long that you think that'll take, affects the discount rate. That you should be applying to, to Bitcoin. And the same thing is true for everything in you know layer ones and Avalanche and Solana and blah, 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 all these things are bets on the far future, right? We believe that someday these things will get adopted and they'll be used and there'll be mil, you know tens of hundreds of millions of users on these things, um, but they're not here today. And that's why interest rates matter and they affect crypto. And so in some sense, I think there's actually reasons to be sanguine because crypto actually drew down less than some of the other things that were comparable growth stocks, right? If you look at, you know, sort of pre-revenue, far future bets, a lot of them are down 70, 80%, whereas, you know, Ethereum is down, you know, maybe 60% from the high. And that might not sound like a big deal, you know, okay, something else is, you know, what is it? Netflix is down like 80%, Ethereum is down 60%. Is that really that big of a difference? Well, it's a difference of 2x actually, because being down 60% and being down 80% means that you have twice as much left as you might otherwise have. Um, and a lot, you know, in, in, in the throes of a bull market, or sorry, of a bear market, it's sometimes hard to appreciate the the enormity of the difference between something that's down 80% and something that's down 60%. Um, but I think if you take a holistic view, crypto fundamentals actually look okay. Um, there are people are still using this stuff. They're still paying fees. OpenSea is still getting volume. People still trading NFTs. They're still playing GameFi. All this stuff is still happening. There are still entrepreneurs here building. There's still a lot of innovation taking place, but um, it's, it's, you know the, the price level has been reset because of the 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 different macro environment, and that's why I think it's different.
0: Yeah, that was a great great, great synopsis. So, so a few follow up questions. One is, you're you're still excited about Bitcoin's potential to be a risk off, you know, a, a, you know, a hedge against inflation. What needs to be true um, for 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 that to happen? Uh, a lot
1: of time. <laughs> I mean, the reality is is uh, you know, Bitcoin gets less volatile every single year. Right. That it, you just do the math. You just look at the look at the chart. It gets volatile every year. And it's going to get more and more boring as more and more people discover it. And whoever's going to buy it is going to buy it. And whoever's not going to buy it never buys it. The problem with Bitcoin, the reason why it's so unstable is that there are still people who haven't decided yet whether or not they want Bitcoin. But eventually we'll all decide. Eventually Bitcoin will be 30 years old. It'll be some boring old asset that you know you associate with boomers and your parents and whatever, and we—it's not feeling so fantastical or so unique or so interesting. And that's when the volatility of Bitcoin will go down, and we'll figure out the role that it plays as a commodity in the broader picture of commodities, right? Now, the idea of Bitcoin as an inflation hedge today is laughable, right? It's obviously wrong. Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. It's not even—it's hardly correlated to inflation. Um, some people say that oh, Bitcoin will go up when there's inflation. Bitcoin will go down when there's inflation. No, there's no, there's no connection. Just draw the line out. There's no connection between Bitcoin and inflation. The idea is that maybe someday there will be, uh, to the extent that you know people use gold as a flight to safety asset. But the reality is even gold isn't a great inflation hedge. So this is another kind of somewhat BS narrative that tends to circulate a lot in the crypto economy. the The goal is not to be a hedge. A hedge means that you're anti correlated, right? It means that when they when that goes up, you go down. The goal for Bitcoin and what it's been historically is uncorrelated. And that is, I think, the role that it's probably going to end up playing in a lot of economies, that it's going to be uncorrelated with a lot of these other assets, not anti-correlated. I mean, we'll see. It's obviously hard to, to draw the line out that far, but the honest answer is that you just wait. Bitcoin will eventually get there. Yeah.
0: That's encouraging. And, and then so for people who are looking for you know, investment opportunities in terms of like, what's the next narrative or what's the next thing that's, that's going to kind of take off in the next six months, is it is it more exogenous, as you said, like hey, just wait for the market to get better, or like sit you know, in cash in the meantime? Or like, how do you think
1: about that? No, that's a that's a fair question. I, I would definitely never say that. You know, you just <laughs> wait for macro to get better and then you'll make money. Um, that may be true for Bitcoin. It may be true for some of the other things like Ethereum. But um, when it comes to betting on the next big trend, the next big trend I don't think is going to be macro driven. It's going to be adoption driven. So when where is that adoption going to come from? In, in an environment of positive real rates. Right, where interest rates are going up um, it changes a lot about what you should expect from consumer behavior you know like i said crypto has only existed in a world of low interest rates so when you get to high interest rates you should expect weird things to happen you should expect things to change so one of those things that i think is all we're already seeing is we're seeing less demand for speculation right okay now why are you seeing that in a world of deeply negative real rates what that means like practically speaking it means that you know you work your job you come home you go look at your 401k and it's worth less than it was yesterday Right, it means that your wealth is actively being eroded as you sit there and just live your life, and so that means that like, hey, you come home and your incentive is, you know, to go bet on a meme stock or to go join a DAO or to go buy some NFTs or to go, you know, liquidity mine something, right? That there, there's there's an incentive for speculation because otherwise you have no shot shot at really growing your wealth. Now, in a world of positive real rates, then your incentive becomes okay, you know, work your job, come home watch Netflix and like, you know, just have Wealthfront take care of your, you know, take care of your wealth. Like you'll, you'll It'll just grow over time by itself. And that world leads to very different consumer behavior, right? We're seeing that. We're seeing it across the board. So whether it be in, you know, Robinhood participation going down, you know, there are fewer uh, retail traders trading this stuff, volumes have gone down. We're seeing, we're seeing the meme stock phenomenon start to go away, right? There are no new meme stocks in the last year. Where do they all go? I mean, like, you know, GameStop and AMC are still there. They're so weird, but there are no new ones. And you see the same thing in crypto side, right? For Q1 earnings and for Coinbase, they had a big earnings miss, and a large part of the reason why it spooked Wall Street was because Coinbase for the first time had a significant drop in retail participation, and it was the first time ever that there were more institutions trading on Coinbase than there were retail, which is new. We've never been an institution-driven market before, but here we are. Crypto is now institution-driven. So, what that means is that things that are more speculative are not going to do as well. Things that are more financial in nature. Are not going to do as well. And the things that will likely do better are things that people will still do in a world where there's less speculation and also potentially uh you know less household savings. So what will people do? Let's say we go into a recession. What are people gonna still do in a recession? Well, they might not yield farm, but they'll probably still play games, they'll probably still own NFTs and they'll still, you know, have profile pictures and they'll still, you know, bullshit each other on Twitter and you know, whatever, they'll still be parts of these communities. Like so the the, the things that look more like consumption are the activities that you should expect will continue to grow and do well in an environment like we're probably seeing over the next six to 18 months. So if I had to guess, I would say that things like crypto gaming, NFTs, uh, and the the infrastructure that supports them are likely going to be the place where we see most of the growth in crypto over the next period. Um, But it also depends on your view of macro, right? So if if you think that we're not gonna stay in an environment of higher real rates, and you think that rates are eventually going down once the Fed gets inflation under control, um, then you might have a different view. Then your view might be like, look, I think all this, all this stuff is coming back. The music's going to start playing again as soon as inflation gets tamped down and and rates, uh, you know, the Fed pumps the brakes on rates. So it, it it depends on what you think the macro picture is going to look like. But the short answer is I think things that people use are the things that are going to grow. Yeah, so
0: uh, opportunity for consumer. Exactly. Finally, crypto consumer. Let, let's talk about uh, Ethereum. There's been um, over, over the years, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, Fred Wilson said Ethereum needs a CEO, you know, people have been complaining about um, kind of Ethereum's um, you know, shipping cadence, this, you know, e 2 is in fact not e 2 this is sort of stuff. There was someone who uh, you know, wrote something recently about how Ethereum is in a hard place where they're not digital gold and they're not, you know, as as um, effective as as Solana at, at, at you know, getting, going to be able to scale or, or, or speed. And so they're in this kind of messy middle where they're neither nor. I I I think you disagree with that. Why don't you unpack your take on, on, on Ethereum?
1: So it's a it's an age-old question, right? Is like, is boring stable governance better than fast effective governance? And that's that's the story. Ethereum is boring stable governance. So it doesn't really change a lot. There's no drama, there's no like big horrible thing that you're worried about. But you're also like, look, when is this when is this shit gonna get better? Um, whereas, you know, contrast that with Solana, Solana is a perfect example of, you know, move fast, break things and things break a lot. And that is, that that creates another set of constraints and another set of, of challenges that, that, you know, Solana, for example, has to deal with. The reality is you need both, but once something becomes big and really important, it is actually, there is a premium on having the governance of that thing be kind of boring and stable. So, you know, there's a lot of complaints about gridlock in the U S and Congress, um, but uh, if you compare that to places that are constantly changing their laws and constantly you know having sh- shifts in the balance of power you might prefer it you might prefer a world where yeah you, you don't need to know that much about what's happening on capitol hill because not much is happening that, that that can be that can actually be good uh, because it gives entrepreneurs it gives builders it gives people a stable foundation on which to you know rest their assumptions about uh what they can do and what they can build so um, I, I'd say for the most part, now, I, look, I, I don't mean to say that Ethereum is, governance is ideal or even close to it, or that uh, it's good. I think there are a lot of things that obviously could be improved about Ethereum governance and Ethereum technology itself. But the reality is Ethereum, I mean, here's the other thing that people, uh, I think, don't appreciate enough about Ethereum. So Ethereum is now about seven years old, maybe slightly older than seven years. Uh, Bitcoin is, what is it, uh, 13, 13 years old? So right now, Bitcoin is about twice as old as Ethereum. Um, In another seven years, Bitcoin will be, uh, what, 20 years old, and Ethereum will be, you know, 14 years old. And the spread will get smaller and smaller, right? It will stop looking so much like Bitcoin is a really old one and Ethereum is a new one. It'll start looking more and more like these are both really old. And they're both really stable, and they've both been around forever, and they're both like things that you can basically trust will never go away. And I think that's honestly a lot of the value of Ethereum is the fact that it was first the fact that it's been there for a long time, the fact that the community can rely on it, and it's not going anywhere. I think a lot of people believe that Ethereum is about this you know, proof of stake, sharding, blah, blah, blah story. And I think that's actually a misapprehension of what makes Ethereum Ethereum, what makes Ethereum so powerful and so important in the crypto pantheon. Um, I think the, the transition to proof of stake, which is slated to happen this year, is really important. And it is something that I actually have high confidence will happen. But Ethereum moving to a world of higher scalability. So to be clear, when Ethereum launches Ethereum 2.0, it doesn't get any more scalable. The fees don't go down. It doesn't get faster. None of those things happen. All that happens is that the proof of work stuff goes away. So there's no more mining. There's no more energy runoff. There's no more you know negative externalities around uh, carbon consumption. Um, you know Ethereum goes green basically, which is great. And the monetary policy changes to to uh, uh, to reflect that. But uh, it's it, in a way, it's more about the positive externalities in the world and the narrative shift for Ethereum than it is about any improvement in performance. Uh, But I think that's okay. I think the reality is that we live now in a multi-chain world. There's not just one chain and it doesn't look like there will be. Um, The best analogy I can give for it is that Ethereum is like Manhattan. It's the most happening place in crypto. Uh, It's really expensive. It's really old. Uh, The governance is kind of just Stuck in time, like you can never build anything new. It's like, so it's super painful, but it's also super cool. You know, the biggest DeFi protocols and banks and whatever, they're all there the same way as the biggest financial institutions are all in New York. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a new up and comer, like maybe you're priced out, you can't rent an apartment there and people, you feel like everyone else already got rich and you're too late to the party. Um, but culturally, it's the most important place. It's, 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 it's a place you couldn't do without. But, um, if you want to grow a country, you can't just do it in one city. It doesn't work. Right. And you can't just say like, look, we're going to, we're going to crack open Manhattan and we're going to extend it. And we're going to create, you know, blah, 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 because we need everyone wants to live here. It's like, no, 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 You let Manhattan be Manhattan. And, but you need other cities to complement it. Right. You need a Boston, you need a Jersey city, you need an LA, you need a, uh, you know, a Chicago. And that's what these other L1s are. They Kind of fill in the gaps of saying, you know what, we're gonna make different trade-offs, we're gonna be governed differently, we're gonna have a different culture, we're gonna we're going to um make ourselves appealing to different kinds of industries or different kinds of applications, and that's what we're seeing, whether it be Solana or Avalanche or Near Protocol, each of these layer ones has a different identity, a different culture, they target a different kind of application. Um, they have a different set of trade-offs between decentralization, throughput, speed of iteration, etc. And I think that is likely to persist. I think we're going to see that. Be the way that blockchains look for a long time, eventually to the consumer, uh, it may end up looking opaque. Because as a consumer, like you don't necessarily care, for example, you know, what was sourced in the supply chain for your shoes. All you know is that you have cheap shoes. You don't need to know that, like, hey, this thing was made in Boise and this thing was came from China, and this thing came from Malaysia. All you know is, like, hey, I got these shoes are great. And I suspect that's the, the experience of most consumers when they interact with crypto. But for people who are really deep in crypto and who are interacting on a day-to-day basis with some of the applications and some of the, um, the games and the other parts of the ecosystem, these things will live on one chain or another as defined by the, the trade-offs that make sense for that particular application. So
0: are you, are you suggesting that maybe there won't be, you know, kind of a power law, you know, one or two, you know, platforms that kind of take most of market share with some fragmentation outside of that. And that, that will truly be, you know, really spread out, um, in the way that cities are, um, but maybe nations aren't in terms of, uh, power or something. Um, what, what's your take on the concentration?
1: Well, well, I'd say the opposite. I'd say actually that cities do obey a power law, right? If you look at New York, it's by far the largest city in the U.S. And then L.A. is like maybe half the size of New York. And then Chicago is like two-thirds the size of that. And then what's what's after that? Houston or something, which is like smaller than that. And, and then it really out of the top 10, it really falls off, right? There's really not a lot of major cities outside the top 10. Same thing as nations, right? Nations have the exact same power law where U.S. is like, you know, twice as big GDP as China. And then it kind of falls off after that. You see this kind of law, it's actually Zip's law, is the description of this kind of, this this sort of uh, uh, distribution. It's very, very common. And I think you already see, I'm not even, I'm not even making a theory. Like this is, if you just look at the market caps of crypto. That's what it looks like, right? Like Ethereum is like, you know, three times the size of a BNB chain. And then there's Solana, which is like a third of that. And then there's, you know, the third of that is half of that. And it looks a lot like if you just chart the market caps of uh, cryptocurrencies or low ones next to the market cap, or sorry, next to the population size of cities, You get a very similar distribution. And so this is not so much a a theoretical description as a descriptive uh, description of what's actually the case today. And I just think that's not going to change. I think that what you're going to see is that we often like to describe layer ones as networks, which is a deceiving metaphor. Because when you think of a network, you think of something like Facebook or something like the internet, in which case there is no constraint on how big Facebook can get. There's no constraint on how big the internet can get. But blockchains are actually physically constrained. They're physically constrained because they cannot be arbitrarily big. If they're arbitrarily big, they cannot be decentralized anymore. So you have to have some binding constraint on how big a block can be. And you know, it's it, it is still a network, but it's a network that's physically constrained, which is exactly like a city. A city is a network that is physically constrained. You can only make a city so big once it gets too big, it splits in, you know, there's like Dallas and Fort Worth, where they're, you know, they're they're big, but they're two cities that are like just close to each other. And I think the same thing is true in blockchains, and that's why we're going to see similar dynamics emerge as they end up growing and evolving.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting. Like if someone made the following predictions, basically that Ethereum has a better chance of winning digital gold than it does kind of the you know smart contract platform everyone builds on, because you know it's gonna be more ESG favorable and, and companies are really gonna care about that. And Bitcoin is increasingly seen as this kind of like anarchic, you know, libertarian, almost right wing kind of you know, crazy community, and corporations wanna be more in tune with kind of Ethereum values. Then, then maybe they'll, and to the extent that we convince all corporations to hold some percentage, of you know, a small percentage in 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 crypto more broadly, maybe they choose Ethereum. So that that's sort of one prediction, and the other prediction is because Solana isn't, you know, focused, or some of these other platforms are not focused on being, you know, World War Three uh, proof, um, and they're not. You know, they're just focused on scalability. you know, relentlessly, maybe they'll be more likely to um you know be the platform that that millions of people are are, are building on and, and using. Would you disagree with any of those predictions or think that something else is more likely, or what's your take?
1: I find that plausible. Um, I don't know how likely it is that those things are true, but I, I find it plausible. I, I don't think it matters so much to be World War three resistant. Uh, I think this is a I mean this one that certainly is is core to the Ethereum. Set of values, uh, and I think it's important that Ethereum try to play that role. But is it important for other blockchains to also be "quote unquote" World War II resistant? And I guess part of the reason why I, I I'm somewhat skeptical of this is that you know this idea that uh, blockchains need to be resistant to nation state level of attacks. This is a very old idea, right? It, it arrives in uh, you know very very old blog posts uh, or, or forum posts in Bitcoin Talk, like back in the early you know, like 2010, 2011 is when people were first talking about this idea. And we've never let go of this, right? You read academic papers that describe how blockchains work. It's like, okay, here's how we do against a nation state level attack. The reality, of course, is that you want to make sure that your threat model is is actually being updated in real time as your understanding of the world is improving. And our understanding of the world has changed so that we realize that's not what nation states do. Blockchain has been around for over a decade now and nation states aren't attacking it. The way that nation states attack Blockchains is not by doing, you know, buying a bunch of hash rate and doing a bunch of crazy shenanigans on chain. They do what China did, which is they just ban it and they throw people in jail, right? That's the that's the nation state level attack. So the real thing that you have to worry about is you have to worry about robustness. You have to worry about collusion among the actors who are close to the network, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think these are the things that you have to really think about. But you also need to think about what is the likelihood that nation states want to throw the people behind this thing in jail? And maybe that's actually an even more important part of the security model of a blockchain than the question of can this thing, you know, survive a central bank buying up hash rate. So I think not everybody agrees with this mode of analysis, but I think it, uh, what it tells you is that it's something actually to your point. It's very important to adopt the right values because adopting the right values, I think, has a very big impact on how lawmakers, regulators, and nation states are going to perceive you. And when it comes to real world security and real world robustness. Ethereum is actually much, much, much safer than a lot of other things in the space, not because of any properties of decentralization or you know, true kind of on-chain security, but just because Ethereum has a great brand. Yeah. And having a great brand actually matters a lot with respect to how you're going to be perceived by by governments, by legislators, and by regulators. Totally. You you had this blog post, I
0: feel like a couple of years ago, where you said something like if Bitcoin is supposed to be seen as a threat to governments, why aren't they more scared? Or, or mm-hmm. I don't know. Botch your your argument. What? not you unpack your argument and, and what you think we've learned since? Or if you... <laughs> I don't
1: know. Uh, yes. So the 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 original blog post. This is this is like 2018. I think I wrote this blog post. Uh, the blog post. I'm trying to recall it. Basically, the, the core the core premise of the argument is why haven't governments already banned crypto, and specifically Bitcoin? Why haven't governments already banned Bitcoin? It seems like from first principles you should assume okay, this is a non-sovereign form of money. That anybody can use, anybody can transfer to anybody else. It like it kind of violates every single assumption about how money works that that most regulators, financial regulators, have assumed. Um, it can be used for money laundering, it can be used by drugs. Be, you know. Obviously, it's not it's not really used for any of those things. But of course, in, in theory, it can. So why isn't it banned? It seems like exactly the kind of thing that governments would want to ban if you took its claim seriously. So there are a few theories that you could advance of why it hasn't already been banned. A bad theory. Would be that you can't ban it because Bitcoin is so powerful and so wonderful and blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, China's already shown us. No, you can you can just ban it. It's fine. So, so what's a good theory of why Bitcoin has been banned? So, one theory is that nation states are actually less monolithic and sort of you know single-mindedly competent than you might otherwise think. And any sort of any attempt to reify the nation state as a single actor that is keeping its own incentives in mind is just a bad theory. That's one story you could tell. Is like, ah, it's just it's just not, you know, it's the wrong way to think about it. A second theory you could advance is that the reason why people are not uh, nations is not banning crypto is that Bitcoin is that it's too small; it just doesn't matter. That's actually not a bad theory. I think that's a reasonable one because Bitcoin, on absolute scale, is is not that big, uh, at least not for any particular country, right? So if you're the U.S., you know you you have a, a gigantic economy. Bitcoin, okay, so sure, nominally it's you know 500, 600 billion market cap for Bitcoin, but how much of that is actually moving to the U.S. economy? A pretty small portion. Most of it is just sitting around doing nothing. So. It's it's like one big stock, right? How much are you worried about one, you know, kind of one Facebook-sized company? I mean, maybe Facebook's a bad example, uh, just, just because it's so triggering as a company, but I don't know, one Berkshire Hathaway sized company, how big is that relative to like, oh, we have to regulate this one thing? Maybe it's just not that big. Um, a third theory is that actually maybe Bitcoin is not that scary. Maybe the idea that Bitcoin is a big bad wolf that all these governments are like letting in like a sleeper cell and they don't understand how they're you know devalu- they're 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 risking their own lives by letting this thing in the front door. Maybe that's just wrong, and maybe actually that governments see Bitcoin as pretty harmless. They see it as anodyne. Actually, it doesn't really impair any of their policy goals or any of the things they actually care about with respect to financial regulation. And I suspect that this is actually closest to the real answer because Bitcoin is not private. Bitcoin uh, is not particularly stable, right? It's just not a great financial uh, store of value in that sense. Uh, Bitcoin is mostly kind of a financial curiosity. Uh, People don't really, I mean, I think the best theory why people don't want to regulate is it doesn't do anything. It's not scary. Um, It's just a way, it's just a thing people can buy. People can buy gold, people can buy silver, they can buy Bitcoin. There are very few governments in the world that are, you know, humming and hawing about people buying gold or silver. Um, Now there are a few countries that do. You know, India being a good example of it, China being a good example of it, and in fact, these are the countries that have been most inimical to crypto. But most first-world countries don't care. You can buy as much gold or as much silver as you want. And I think that's most likely the correct theory for Bitcoin, but what it implies is that that may not be true for Ethereum. It may not be true for smart contracts, it may not be true for DeFi, it may not be true for these other things. And in fact, I think that, you know, I wrote this in 2018, Back before any of this stuff was big, right? DeFi was small. You know, privacy coins were de minimis. You know, all this stuff really wasn't working yet. Uh, and now that it's here, now that we do see many more things that are sort of user and application-facing in crypto, um, I think you can you can see it for yourself. The attitude has changed. There's a lot more discomfort with things that are happening in DeFi, things that are happening more broadly in crypto outside of Bitcoin, um, which makes me think that that's probably. Why it is that governments so far have been largely okay with Bitcoin existing?
0: yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they get involved in more of a major way just what that means for the for the space. and, and you gave one example of just brand being really important, very clear values being really important, and uh, everyone's so focused on on the tech, but that isn't always how regular, regulators are going to evaluate projects.
1: Yeah, it's also very important that Ethereum has managed to get the approval of a lot of the intelligentsia. Now it hasn't done so for everyone, right? The, the New York Times can't stop writing hit pieces about how proof of work is, you know, scourging the planet or whatever. How NFTs are evil because they <laughs> cause all these, you know, blah blah blah, whatever, right? Once and, and I'm sure once Ethereum moves to proof of stake, they will find some other reason to be mad at crypto. And you know, it's like you're absolutely right that there is a kind of right wing element to crypto that's just been just been branded into people's brains. And uh, I don't think they'll let it go, even if Ethereum moves to proof of stake. So. I think there's some of this there but the reality is that there are a lot of people in higher places who, who perceive ethereum and crypto broadly as being really interesting and good and innovative yeah. and we've seen the embrace of so many companies that are getting into nfts you know things like you know uh, all, all of the, these fortune 500 players who've started becoming more ostensibly crypto friendly you know facebook and instagram adopting nfts and twitter having profile pictures and you know square and blah blah, blah all so on and so forth all these folks getting into crypto in a big way Shows them they're like, hey, this stuff is normal now. It's not scary, and it's okay to endorse it. Totally, that's great. Great context. Uh, secondly, a little bit, we mentioned um
0: stable coins. You you mm. came on a few years ago with Miles Snyder, and we gave a, a deep dive into the different you know models of stable coins, and and it was largely theoretical. There were some you know um, examples starting to play out, but now we've seen more examples. Uh, we've seen some some work, some some you know majorly collapse, which you wrote about um Tara uh, you know re- recently. Where are you where do you think we are in the stablecoin ex, ex, experiment? Do you have any inklings as to as to how it might might play out?
1: Yeah, so stablecoins are stablecoins have always been somewhat fraught. You know, Terra collapsed in May, and Terra was you know it was a very large stablecoin, about fourteen billion in UST that was circulating. Although most of that UST was not actually circulating circulating, most of it was sitting locked in anchor. But uh, so the, the actual float was much smaller. But um, nominally, at least, it was you know fourteen billion that got wiped out. And most of what that's caused is not, you know, a lot of people get concerned within crypto about this idea of systemic risk. It's like, oh, you know, what if there's systemic risk from crypto? What if it you know causes a great financial crisis type situation? You know, you get even Janet Yellen speculating about how much contagion effect there might be from crypto. The reality is that, okay, Terra completely collapsed, right? Literally the whole thing went to zero. There was a bank run, the thing, you know, exploded on itself in an extremely dramatic way. Um, was there contagion from UST? The answer is no. Nothing else in crypto. I mean, MakerDAO was fine. Compound was fine. You know, Ethereum was fine. Everything else in crypto is fine because things in crypto get to make choices for themselves. Compound decided not to list anything from Terra or UST. You know, almost every, almost nobody else used UST for anything uh, if they weren't in the Terra ecosystem because other people felt like, hey, I don't I don't know if this thing is trustworthy. People chose their own wallets, so they decided that they they didn't want to create reliance on this thing, and so the the, the robustness of crypto, notwithstanding. The story from regulators is okay this is scary and it's now time to jump into consumer protection mode and so anytime that you have a situation where something bad happens you know if a girl falls down a well there's always going to be some you know rallying cry of like oh we should pass a law for you know the girl falling down wells law that prevents girls from going near wells right and so there's going to be some very narrowly kind of contrived regulation that's going to say algorithmic stablecoins are illegal or something, you know, I'm sure we're going to see stuff like this. Uh, we already just saw in Japan, Japan, just uh, the, their legislature passed a bill saying that stablecoins must be redeemable one for one with, you know, some underlying value, which is like, okay, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes, understood. So I, I do think there's going to be probably punitive stablecoin regulation or algorithmic stablecoins coins will be made illegal in some jurisdictions for whatever reason, just because it, look, we you, you always want to make sure the last thing that failed doesn't happen again, even though Nobody needs to be told, you know. Don't do U.S.C. again. People understand. Don't you do U.S.C. again? But that—that's how lawmakers tend to operate. In, in in the longer run, I think the the bigger impact is going to be the sense that like, hey, we need to get this thing under control. Um, I think it's going to be—it's much more likely that we're going to see spillover effects to broader DeFi regulation, and especially to st- broader stablecoin regulation. Um, I think it, it's the biggest risk is going to be that we face a world where. You know the the OCC basically gets what it gets what it wants. Treasury gets what they want. They say, hey, all these stable coins, they are basically unregulated dollars. We need to bring these back under the jurisdiction of banking regulation. These are basically just you know unlicensed banks. They require all stablecoin issuers to get bank charters, which of course is extremely difficult. Most stablecoin issuers couldn't do that, and it means that when a user owns a stablecoin, they have to be KYC. They have to you know the bank has to perform AML. They have to you know issue. Uh, they, they have to have some control and some visibility and some surveillance of people who are holding these stablecoins and transacting in them. In which case, these things are just, you know, they're just bank accounts. They're just, you know, bank deposits that are T plus zero. And in that world, th- basically, the, the, the crypto demand for stablecoins completely collapses because stablecoins are, are so interesting. They're such a vibrant market because they're global. Everybody in the world denominates their crypto trading in USDT or in USDC, which are the two dominant stablecoins. It doesn't matter whether you're in Asia, whether you're in Singapore, whether you're in Malaysia, whether you're in Japan, whether you're in Korea. Everybody denominates their trading against USDT or USDC. And if you remove the ability of people to do this, then that is going to erase a huge part of the crypto trading market. Uh, But of course, a lot of the other innovation of stablecoins is that stablecoins don't have to be owned by people. They can be owned by smart contracts. They can be owned by AIs. They can be owned by all these other sorts of phenomena by multisigs, by, by DAOs, by all this other stuff that uh, doesn't exist in the concept of banking regulation. And so if we see that, most likely, my, uh, I think what happens is that if we see punitive stablecoin regulation, we're going to have to move into a world where the dominant stablecoins in crypto become decentralized stablecoins. So whether that be a MakerDAO, whether that be Frax, whether it be one of these other forms of stablecoins, that is going to be the time where we see the huge renaissance of not just innovation, but also demand for stablecoins. If we see that happen, right now these guys are waiting in the wings to see what happens with centralized stablecoin regulation. But depending on what happens there, I suspect that we're going to see a lot of really interesting things happen on the decentralized stablecoin side. But for now, it's a radioactive market to be touching, and especially you know again right after the last collapse, nobody wants to be you know out there with a with a with a loudspeaker talking about how great their decentralized stablecoin is.
0: That, that, that's a very good color. I want to go back to your your famous blockchains as cities metaphor, and you you have a great. Um, Great blog post about this, and and a great podcast on Bankless about it. But it's, I mean, you know, one of the big questions people have about the future is obviously who are the big winners? You know, how multi-chain is it, etc. And and your analogy of the cities, talk a little bit about that in terms of describing what are the different trade-offs um, that some of these? You know, we talked about Ethereum, and um, we talked about Bitcoin, obviously. But there's Solana, there's Avalanche, there's Near, there's there's, there's others. Talk about some of the main ones. What trade-offs you know they're making as they relate to different cities and um, or cities as analogies. And uh, if you have any predictions about ones that you're you know more more excited about, to the extent that you feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I made the analogy of Ethereum being Manhattan, crazy expensive, very slow, slow to move, slow to change, but it's full of culture, it's full of money, it's full of vibrancy, it's it's a happening place, right? So, uh, but let, let's say that you want to scale your country past Manhattan, right? Not everybody can live in Manhattan. So, so, so where do you go? What do you do? So one option is to build something like a side chain. Uh, a side chain is, you know, there's something like Ax infinity has its own side chain. It's a, kind of a somewhat centralized chain that sort of lives in the periphery of the main blockchain. So, you know, that's something like maybe Jersey city is kind of like the side chain to, <laughs> to New York. But most of where people go and most of what the, the real vibrancy of economic activity comes from is from having different cities that have very different cultures from each other and specialize in different things, right? America would not be America if we all lived on the East Coast. It just, it, it wouldn't be the same place. Uh, you need the West Coast. and You need this kind of different generation of thinkers and builders and intellectuals and culture that interact to create the tapestry of what makes America so interesting. So now the second generation of uh, cities that have been built, I mean, the the, the most, you know, the one that we were just spoke about earlier is Solana. So Solana, I liken to being like LA Solana is this place where you know it's it's you know we went all the way west. It's super you know high performance decentralization like ah, you know I don't know it's all that highfalutin East Coast stuff. It, it's it's all about you know getting your five minutes of fame, launching your NFT collection. It's super cheap. It's super fast. It's for the people. The weather's great. Like it's awesome. It's it's all a bunch of sprawl. It's like fine, just get you know go get your own house, get your mansion. It's no big deal. Every, nobody has to live in high rises if you live here in LA, and that that feeling, obviously it it engenders a lot of scorn from the East coast crowd, you know, the decentralization, maximalist, traditionalists. they're like, Oh, this is so centralized. So bullshit. But Solana is just doing its thing. And it's like, man, you know, look, we don't pick on anyone. We don't want, you know, we don't try to fight with anyone. We're just doing our thing and we just love Solana unless you're Kyle from multi-coiner, which is big fights, but everyone else, Solana is very friendly and they're just like, ah, oh, live and let live. It's all cool. So that's Solana. Then the next one that I, I characterize is Avalanche. So Avalanche, I liken more to like Chicago. So Avalanche is, Actually, more it's kind of in the style of New York, right? Avalanche it copied the EVM, which is the, the virtual machine behind Ethereum, meaning you can launch programs, you can launch Ethereum directly onto uh Avalanche, which you can't do on Solana. Solana's its own whole thing. But you know, Chicago, it's kind of recognizable to New York, where it's like, oh, it's kind of financy, it's a kind of fast-moving city. There's a lot of trading. It's it's very finance-oriented, it's very brusque, but it's it's you know, it's a it's a strong uh place, it's got a strong culture, it's got a very, you know, kind of the the energy is recognizable to new yorker uh the kind of feeling that you have in in chicago and it's it's also you know it's it's a little bit icy uh as chicago tends to be as avalanche tends to be um but it's uh it's it's hard to bet against the 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 attitude and the energy that characterizes avalanche um and then the last one i characterize is near so near i say is more like san francisco so it's a little idealistic. Like Near is trying to be Ethereum 2.0, but years before Ethereum 2.0 be there. Just, it wants to be sharded, it wants to be super developer friendly. It wants to be hyperscalable. It's it's very much in its first flush. It's you know recently launched, it's it doesn't have as much TDL, but it's getting there. There's a lot of growth, there's a lot of excitement. There's really, really smart people building on top of it. So it's it's a it's a longer-term story. It's uh, trying to, you know, flesh out all the things that it sees in the long-term future. And there's some really smart people who believe in it. And there's some people who think like, ah, you know, these. The, the, it's too flowery, too idealistic for me. Not my, not my cup of tea. Unless I can, you know, go gamble on something tomorrow. Right. Um, so that, so if you if you imagine it this way, all these different cities or these different layer ones, they each attract a different kind of user. They each attract a different kind of entrepreneur. They're built for a different type of application. There, are different things that really thrive individually in these cities. But not only that, if you're an entrepreneur, it's not obvious that you want to go to Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan is a great place, but uh, look, if you want to build, uh, you know the best, uh, you know I don't know, the, uh, let's say the best restaurant. You're in New York, you've got crazy competition. Whereas if you go to LA, you go to Chicago, or you go to Houston, actually your restaurant might end up being the best restaurant in the city. And so there's a sense in which there's a natural dispersion of uh, of companies, of startups, of applications across these different blockchains, uh, servicing different kinds of users, but also uh, trying to become dominant in each of their own respective cities.
0: Do, do you have a take on how um attached people are going to be to these identities meaning if they're in let's say you know near in San Francisco but they realize that you know salon in la or whatever you know serves them better are they easily going to switch to that Or are they gonna say you know what I, I'm a near I've been near I'm near till death they're like how do you think about that?
1: It's hard to know I think right now the most people who are on other chains are multi-chain right and so they' there it is basically, I don't think it's a, I'm only on X and I won't touch anything else. Uh, I think maybe there's some Ethereum and Bitcoin maxis for whom that's true, but very few other chains uh, have I observed that kind of behavior. Um, I think it's more that, uh, look, I'm open to being wherever, right? Like if you go live in, uh, I don't know, Boise or something, you're like, look, I, I, I'm living in Boise, but like if somebody wants to give me a job in some other state, I'll if it's good enough, I'll go. And uh, I, think that, I think that's probably also true for people on most chains that are not Ethereum. Uh, but it's possible that could change. And with enough time and with enough sort of consolidation of culture and community, I might say, to them, look, this is my jam, this is my community, this is what people I care about, people I love, like this is where I've built up my street cred, this is where my NFT collection is, this is all the tokens I own, you know, all the yield that I have, all the reputation I've built up on chain. Uh, and I don't want to give that up and start over. And in the early days, you know, we're still in sort of the frontier settle, you know, we're still in the settlers phase of crypto, in which case, uh, you know, people are still mobile. They still haven't put down their roots, um, but eventually they will. And I think when that happens, we'll probably see less migration uh, happening as a, as, as a matter of common sense.
0: Yeah. Well, during towards closing here, maybe the last question I'll ask you is the central question we've been asking as an industry for quite some time, which is the, the right mental model of decentralization. You went on the, the Delphi podcast and you were talking with Tom Shaughnessy about it. There's a the mental model of progressive decentralization that has emerged that that people seem to, to, to resonate with. You mentioned earlier in this podcast that, you know, World War III proof, while great for Ethereum to have clear values, you know, most other products probably don't need that. When you're advising projects or like, what's your leaning or hint? or even the conception of the right mental models to have or, or about decentralization or, or the ones to avoid?
1: I mean, so in, a, in a simple sentence, you need as much decentralization as you need, and you don't need more than that. There's a there's a common refrain in crypto that like more decentralization is better. And I think that is maybe tautologically true, but oftentimes the juice isn't worth the squeeze. There's a certain amount of decentralization you need in order to achieve certain properties. And if you go more decentralized than that, you're not really doing anything. You're mostly virtue signaling. and Virtue signaling is sometimes okay. It's important to signal virtue. <laughs> like, I don't want to imply that virtue signaling is not important. That's why you will do it so much because it is really important. Uh, but uh, you also want to be practical about like, look, the, the primary thing that matters is that people use you, that people give a shit about what you're building, that you actually delight your users and you provide them some value. And if you can be decentralized while you're doing it, all the better. If you can't, okay, fine. But uh, you, know, you need enough decentralization to be to be credible, to be neutral, to be legitimate, potentially to be legal, but you don't need just arbitrary amounts of of decentralization just to be a good person or to not get yelled at on Twitter. I think that is a is a game that nobody wins in the end.
0: Yeah, that's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Hazib Qureshi of of Dragonfly. Hazib, thank you so much for coming to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric.